Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. In this series, we're talking all about tax reform, the proposed changes that you should be aware of, the implications for both practitioners and taxpayers, and how we expect the process to play out going forward. I'm your host, Allison Versprill, a reporter at Bloomberg Tax. Today, I'm co-hosting with Justin Schaefer, a partner in the international tax practice at Ernst & Young and the firm's U.S. tax reform leader. Now I'll go ahead and flip it over to Justin, who will introduce <coughs> our speakers today. Allison, thanks so much for having us. We're more than excited to be a part of this series with Bloomberg and look forward to a great conversation on the impact of tax reform on individuals. I'm excited to have with us today Elda DeRay. Elda is a partner in EY's National Tax Department within our private client services practice. Elda focuses her practice on servicing the personal tax and financial planning needs of high net worth individuals. Elda serves a wide variety of family groups and individuals by providing estate and personal income tax services. I'm also joined by EY's David Kirk. David is a partner in EY's National Tax Department within our private client services practice. Prior to joining EY, David was an attorney in the pass-throughs and special industries division of the Office of Chief Counsel at the Internal Revenue Service. In this role, David specialized in federal income taxation of estates, trusts, S-corporations, and partnerships. With that, let's dive right in. Elda, let's first start with you. Certainly, we've seen a lot of activity around the uh, income tax proposals from both the House and the Senate. We have a House bill passed at this point in time, as well as a Senate bill, and it's certainly going to have the major ramifications on individuals. So let's start with the overall framework of the tax reform proposals in the House and the Senate bills. Justin, the uh, provisions in the House and Senate bill for reforming taxation of individuals essentially uh, tax income at different rates. They broaden the, the brackets so that the higher rates apply at higher levels of income and eliminate many of the popular itemized deductions, state and local tax, real estate taxes, and in the case of the Senate bill, it eliminates all miscellaneous deductions. There are provision, many provisions which impact individuals differently depending upon where they live and how they live in terms of owning homes, renting homes. But it does do one additional thing, which I think has not gotten a lot of credit, which is it eliminates much of the marriage penalty that is built into today's current law tax schedule. We also see in the, in the Senate bill the elimination of the individual mandate under the Obamacare. Uh, so the penalty for not having health care uh, coverage is eliminated in the Senate bill. Excellent, Elda. Thank you for that overview. Certainly a lot of components uh, built in within the House and Senate bills affecting the individual side. Uh, chief amongst them, or at least certainly one that is uh, discussed uh, quite frequently and, and is a bit or seemingly a, a bit controversial, is the state and local income tax deduction. That elimination, I think, is getting a, a lot of discussion on the uh, within the, the conference committee currently, and we'll see exactly where that falls out. 
but uh, we, we've got a lot left to figure out in that space uh, particularly. David, let's come back to you. Uh, and, and sticking with the, the overall framework of the, the bills, both in the House side and on the Senate side, uh, on the House side, we see four individual brackets. Uh, on the Senate side, seven. Uh, how will this impact individuals as we march forward uh, and, they, and they look at uh, a lower overall rate, hopefully, uh, with, uh, with the reform that, we're, that, that Congress is seeking? Well, I mean, this is this. You know, what they're trying uh, this year is really nothing new. You know, the, the the mantra of broaden the base and lower the rate has been around uh, our tax system for generations. You know, it was accomplished in 1986, um, and then has been meddled with ever since then. And they're trying to bring that back by eliminating deductions and lowering uh, the rates. Now, uh, granted, it, it, it's not necessarily going to be beneficial to everyone. Uh, there are individuals, uh, maybe high-end uh, wage earners um, in high-tax states that might end up paying um, more income tax uh, to the federal government than they have been before because of loss of the uh, state and local income tax deduction. Um, alternatively, the broaden the base and lower the rate, is it, it, it works on a federal system but doesn't necessarily provide the same uh, benefits to the state level because if you broaden the base, that means you have higher taxable income. And if the states don't make corresponding reductions to their rates, what happens is individuals will pay more state income tax than they would have otherwise and at the same time not be allowed uh, to deduct that increased state tax against their federal and so in some instances, you know, it's not necessarily a tax cut uh, for the rich or, or maybe tax cut for anyone. It's possible that when you combine all the taxes together, um, some individuals will be very much paying more than they have under the current system. Well, and I wanted to chime in, too, when we're talking about the state and local tax deduction. I know the Senate originally had, you know, had a proposal to get rid of the deduction entirely, and then sort of met the House with that $10,000 cap on property taxes. But even now, there's a push to potentially, you know, bring back the entire deduction uh, because it's especially controversial with lawmakers in high-tax states. You know, their constituents are not too happy about these changes. Can you discuss maybe the implications if they were to bring back the full deduction from a revenue perspective? Obviously, this would cost the government money. And so you're going to have to tweet, you know, pull the dials from somewhere else to to make up for that revenue loss. The state and local tax um, is a huge component of the revenue that's being used to fund other things in this tax reform bill. So if the state and local deduction is brought back, you'd need some other offset that is a big number to pay for it. Right. No, and I and I think we'll we'll have to see how this evolves because I know it's not too easy as we've been seeing to to find these offsets to fill some of these gaps. Uh, but while we're while we're talking about some of these more controversial provisions, uh, the Senate in sort of the late uh, late night early morning hours of passing its version of the bill, they brought back the AMT, the alternative minimum tax, both on the corporate and individual sides. Um, on the individual side, 
they decide to maintain the, the AMT with increased exemption amounts and phase out thresholds. Um, can we discuss, you know, what that means? I know this has been highly controversial. Republicans have vowed to repeal the tax, so bringing it back on the Senate side uh, while, you know, maintaining the repeal on the House side could prove, I would think, difficult to reconcile in conference. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, let's let's kind of take a step back for a minute because we, we, we in the House side and in the Senate before this, you know, wee hours amendment to add back A&T, what, what we were seeing is a re, uh, an elimination of at least a substantial majority of the state and local income tax, real estate tax, personal property tax. Um, we saw an elimination of uh, many of the uh, miscellaneous itemized deductions that was on the on the Senate side, less so on the House side. Um, we saw a um, and a uh, curtailing of net operating losses. And if if you think about it, that no no state and local tax deduction, no miscellaneous itemized deduction, the limitation on net operating losses. What they had basically done was turn the uh, three main drivers that put people in AMT. They took the AMT system and simply imported it into the regular tax system, and then they repealed AMT. And so with that, that was probably one of the most simplifying provisions um, in this entire bill, the fact that your tax returns um, would, in theory, not have to be double in size for AMT having to do everything twice. Um you know, to some extent, that was a little bit of a misnomer because on the individual side, AMT was only proposed to be eliminated for 10 years. So it was, to some extent, the Rip Van Winkle of tax system because it would fall asleep and then it would come back when it woke up 10 years from now. And in that circumstance, people would still have to be cognizant of AMT when calculating things such as basis. Because in 11 years from now, when AMT comes back, there might be a regular tax AMT basis disparity that they'd have to reckon with. And they didn't keep up with it this whole time. That would kind of be a, 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 a record-keeping difficulty. But now when the Senate comes in and adds this AMT provision back in, um, it, it, it seems a little strange. Now, they did add it back with um, exemption amounts for both uh, married filing uh, jointly and for everyone else, an increase of about 38% and also increasing the phase-out where it starts kicking in and phasing out by also about 38%. And so initially, I thought, well, if all of the deductions that traditionally cause AMT um, were gone for regular tax, then there shouldn't be very many adjustments for AMT anymore. And so would anyone actually be an AMT? And that's when Elda and I started talking, and Elda came up with uh, some interesting scenarios. What we did was ran uh, a generic individual with only ordinary income and only the standard deduction. And what we found was that if you're married, that um, income of about 325000 to 760000 give or take, those people were per se in AMT. Now, individuals that are single never got into AMT with the same uh, fact pattern. Now, why this happened was the same reason why a lot of people went into AMT for the first time in 2001, is because they lowered the rates 
for regular tax systems, but the AMT rate as a, uh, operating as a flat rate of 26 and a flat rate of 28, once you kick in over 175, those stayed static. And so it's happening the same, it's happening all over again. It's almost Groundhog Day of tax systems because, um, when the Senate is lowering the rates for, for individuals, but also broadening the bracket so you stay in there longer, um, it, it forces the, the, the married filing jointlies into AMT. It cannot be what they intended to do. I would assume we should have some kind of amendment to clarify the application of the AMT. They could not have intended that via the exemptions that they outlined and the rate structure that it applied more to married individuals than single individuals with same levels of income. That's interesting. We'll have to see how, how that you know, changes or if this, this even survives into the final legislation. Uh, but I think... I think we should flip it over now to Justin. I know he was going to talk about private equity um, and maybe get into some of the pass-through provisions, which have been another big area of conversation. Yeah, thanks, Allison. I, I, that's exactly right. So, Elva, let's come back to, to you and, and, you know, drawing on your extensive experience as you serve uh, the family office and private equity communities. Um, help us understand some of the considerations or some of the significant impacts that uh, you're working through with your clients uh, both in the family office and private, ec- private equity space, but uh, as well as just pass-throughs in general? We have a provision for carried interest that only allows carried interest at long-term capital gains rates if the holding period has been a minimum of three years. If the carry in the typically portfolio companies, is less than three years, then the gain would be deemed short-term capital gain, which is taxed at the highest rate. This is a very important provision in the industry, but most of the time, holding periods for private equity are long-term. In fact, the the average fund is uh, a seven-year fund. So the the carving out of carry that are less than three years um, isn't a big number for the industry. However, in working with our clients, we do see a provision in the Senate bill limiting excess business losses as potentially uh, a tax increase in that currently, if you have a business loss and you materially participate in that business loss and you have basis in the entity creating that loss, you get a loss which you can use against other income. Uh, The way the Senate bill is drafted, it limits those losses to $500,000 for married filing joint and requires the individual to carry forward that excess business loss as a net operating loss to future years. The impact of that is that you could have an individual, uh, whether they're in private equity or any other type of business, with significant income on their returns, significant gains on their returns, but limited in how they could use their actual business losses. So that's of concern uh, to business owners who generate losses, particularly in the startup phase. 
often individuals would use their investment income or other sources of income to fund businesses and would reap the rewards of the ability to either carry back those losses as NOLs or shelter that investment income so they had the funds to to fund their businesses that are pass-throughs operating at a loss. We are also looking at the impact of having investments with varying cost basis and tax lots. There is a provision that calls for FIFO in the application of uh, cost basis to to securities that are sold. And it is not clear exactly how that would work. So if you bought a security and had varying levels of cost basis and were not disposing the entire uh, holdings you had in that particular security, you'd be forced to be treating the first security that you, you purchase as the one that is being sold, as opposed to specifically identifying perhaps the highest cost basis lot. So there's concern right now on exactly how that would be applied and whether there should be segregation of low cost basis securities versus high cost basis securities into different accounts or different entities. So this will be very difficult to administer and certainly doesn't add to the simplification goal of tax reform. In theory, the, 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 the um, FIFO rule in, in, its, in, its, um, I know, in its simplest form seems to basically say that, gee, you, um, you should sell your oldest first and it's just a matter of simplicity. You know what that is. But that's not necessarily the case because, you know, what happens if you are an executive that exercises options? And what usually happens when you exercise options is it hits your W-2 for ordinary income, and then you sell the stock out into the open market, usually with a small loss because of the broker commission on the piece. And so what it would end up happening is if you exercise a 1,000 shares of option, uh, you know, a 1,000 shares worth of options, and you sell out those 1,000 shares, you're going to have W-2 income of, say, you know, $1,000. But then what the rule might end up doing is saying you're going to actually deem sell the stock that you've held since 1993 with almost zero cost basis. So in order to have $1,000 of cash in your hand from selling them out into the open market, you might have a 1000 of ordinary income on your W-2 and a 1000 of long-term capital gain. And so that, that, that it, 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 it seems to be a little inequitable on the, um, on the other, on the, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of the employed wealth side of the spectrum. And the other oddity is, um, you know, is it possible that in this first-in, first-out system that you could actually buy stock and end up doing wash sales because your oldest stuff happens to be the high basis that could generate a loss that you didn't want to sell? So there, there's a whole bunch of, like, nooks and crannies buried in this thing that made it um, – that makes it exceptionally complicated once you start digging down, which I think why a lot of people criticize this uh, when it first showed up in camp several years ago. Well, and I want to bring it back to the, the differences in the House and Senate versions of the bill in regards to pass-throughs. Uh, the Senate takes sort of this deduction approach, and the House has a lower rate, but only on a certain amount of income. 
could you discuss you know those those differences perhaps and and where these could these two proposals could get reconciled I, I mean I think this is the one when this, well actually okay so so we're looking at the house side that is basically said you can't you get a 25 percent uh, tax rate but it is the base on which that rate applies is where the complexity is because the house looks to they have a simplifying uh, method that says 30% of uh, the business, net business income that comes out of the entity is deemed to be a return on capital subject to 25% rate the other 70 is meant to represent kind of sweat equity and that that's taxed the regular rate. And what it does is when you kind of blend that together, it takes the top rate and brings it down into the low 30. Now, on the Senate side, the Senate side says, okay, we're just going to take business income that's coming out and give you a phantom deduction, one that we make completely out of whole cloth, of 23%. And what that does is that brings your effective rate from the highest rate all the way down to um, uh, somewhere around 29.6. So the, the 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 net differences between these uh, kind of coming out of the gate is not that is not that far apart. Maybe two percentage points, something along those ways. But the methodology, the Senate is is somewhat simpler, although. It, it is it is not going to be any walk in the park in trying to work through this um, but the 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 house side does have some appeal in its 70 30 simplicity but when real capital when capital intensive businesses start going in and trying to figure this out it is exceptionally complicated so I think both of the both the House and the Senate are really trying to, to the extent possible, bring parity between corporations at their 20% rate, at least that's what they're talking about now, and individuals and trying to bring the individual rate down somewhere close to that. And it is, it is, it is a very, very difficult thing for them to kind of reconcile, even though Parity is still not going to be achieved because corporations are allowed to deduct the state and local income tax uh, before getting to their taxable income for the 20%, but the individuals and pass-through owners are not. So regardless of how close they come in getting this, this special rate down or this special deduction to try to bring parity on rates alone, the taxable income base is always going to be different. For both for for corporations and pass-throughs, that will always put pass-throughs uh, in a less favorable position. Another important difference between the bills for the pass-through rate is that the Senate bill um, is including service businesses for taxpayers um, under five hundred thousand dollars of taxable income for married filing joint. So that's a much broader provision than the House for service businesses. Right. And that, and we'll have to see. I know there's actually been some discussion of, you know, maybe expanding those benefits even more on both the House and Senate side. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk on really where sort of these pass-through provisions go. And I think a good point to sort of get jump into our next conversation 
on estates and trust, you know, pastors is a good area to lead into, actually, because there's been this push on the Senate side by a few lawmakers to extend their 23% uh, percent deduction to trust. Um, but also, you know, which is always a topic of conversation in this area, is the estate tax. And so we have the House bill, which would double the basic estate tax exclusion, um, and then fully repeal the estate and generation generation skipping transfer taxes after 2024. And then you have the Senate version, which would also double the exclusion, but never fully repeal the tax and then sunset their, their doubled exemption um, after 2025. So I want to talk about, you know, what are the implications of these two different proposals and maybe get into some discussion on the planning that the effect on planning, because I know that's a huge part of this area of the tax code. An important provision that is maintained in both the House and Senate bill is the step up in cost basis to fair market value at date of death, so that any appreciation in the estate that's, that's passing through uh, for assets going to beneficiaries in that estate it disappears. And that is very important uh, for our high net worth clients who leave taxable estates. The repeal under the House bill um, seems to be, uh, you know, the, the wish list that is likely, you know, not to be fulfilled in tax reform. However, the doubling of the exemption does give wealthy families the ability to continue and expand upon their gifting during life to remove assets from their estates, which may appreciate. Of course, it has to be balanced now with this, you know, with income tax um, because of the step up in cost basis, but it, it really gives families a lot more room to gift during life and at death free of estate tax. I think the uh, I think the uh, retention of the step up in basis is something that uh, cannot be understated of its importance. Um, I, I think you know we we've tried uh, a carryover basis regime several times in our past, um, and I'm not sure any of them have ended terribly well. Um, I, I I think that uh, you know having uh, an estate tax if you have a Step up in basis um, is is sort of a uh, a, a compromise to wipe the state uh, slate clean. Even if that tax, the estate taxes, is, is, uh, the rate is lowered to something closer to capital gains, I think there is uh, some appeal to that because I think for regular people trying to figure out what grandma's basis is in AT and T that she purchased in 1967 that has split. Uh, dozens of times into dozens of companies and then have reformed is, is, is a, a Herculean task. And the step up in basis is a, is a, is a, uh, a cleanser of, uh, past record keeping flaws that, um, is, is good for both individuals and very much, um, beneficial to the government where the slate is set clean and everyone starts with the same level playing field. Right, and I know, especially if you're switching over to something, if you switched over to something like a carryover basis and didn't maintain that basis step up, I know tracking uh, basis is always 
is always a challenge. So um, from a simplicity standpoint, that might that might be an easier approach to maintain that, that basic step up. Uh, so I think this would be a good point to flip it back over to Justin, um, and maybe we can discuss some other you know items to consider for individuals. Yeah, thanks again, Allison. And so uh, Elda and Dave, I mean, as we think through, we've got year-end uh, rapidly approaching. Uh, we've got the House and the Senate that are currently working in the Joint Conference Committee to work through and reconcile the two bills. What should individuals that are, are really trying to understand all of these different provisions and how this would impact them, you know, with effective rates that could go into effect as of one one eighteen? What should individuals and corporations or companies, businesses that are organized as pass-throughs really be considering today? We are looking at year-end planning for our clients and looking at what the impact would be under tax reform in future years. And you start with, what are the effective rates in 2017 under current law? What would be those effective rates in 2018 under current law and under tax reform? And in fact, we built models to be able to assist these business owners uh, in pulling these numbers together because there's so many moving parts, you can't do this on the back of an envelope. And some of the decisions that are being made right now are, do we accelerate income? Uh, Do we accelerate deductions? What do we do about state and local tax? Should we accelerate our payment of state and local tax? Do we defer our losses and expenses to next year, if we're looking to reduce our state liabilities in the future, which will no longer be deductible. What do we do about our employees? How does this impact our employees? Should we be accelerating bonus payments to employees because our employees pay state and local tax and won't be able to deduct those state and local taxes next year? We're addressing these questions on a daily basis right now. And then for that business owner's own individual itemized deductions, where does charitable fit in? So charitable deductions are still good deductions under both the House and Senate bills next year. But perhaps the marginal benefit is different. So for your AMT taxpayer this year, the charitable benefit is at 28%. But next year, that charitable benefit could be 39.6 under the House bill or 38.5 under the Senate bill. State and local tax, deductible this year. Um, AMT payer doesn't get a benefit for state and local tax, but that AMT payer is getting a benefit potentially for paying state and local tax attributable to their net investment income against that 3.8% tax. Next year, when that state and local tax is gone, it's gone not only for regular tax, but against that 3.8% tax. So there are many items of income, expense, and itemized deduction, which could have a different impact in 17 versus 18. And to the extent that business owner or individual has some control over those items, understanding what the impact is, is important. So it sounds like a lot of things uh, to consider moving forward, and it it's not going to be uh, an easy road for taxpayers trying to plan ahead, but you know, thank God we have tax practitioners like yourself to help us figure out 
um, you know, sift through all of these changes. Uh, so I think that's a great, a great place to end the conversation today. And I wanted to thank you, Dave, Justin, Elda. Thanks for joining us. I'm sure there will be plenty of more opportunities to discuss the tax changes as this, uh, this whole process evolves. Thank you. Thank you. Join us next time as we continue to talk with tax professionals about the implications of what could be the biggest change to our tax code since 1986. Again, I'm your host, Allison Versprill. This has been Talking Tax.